you don't have to be super creative or take unbelievable risk or hit the lottery in order to build the kind of wealth we're talking about here. Well, everything that we're talking about here was built on a solid job, one company, 25 years. I've done I've done very well at that company. That company has been great for me. But this is just um, spending less than you make and investing the difference and doing it all the time, no exceptions. So I, that that's been the you know the mantra we've used for. 25 years and and normal people can do this. Yes, people are going to have incomes that vary. Not everybody's going to have the same uh, level of income I did, but everybody can do every other thing that I did. Um, and whether you got the same income level or not, you, you can you can get to wealth levels that you know that will surprise you, um, if you if you just start this early on. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. What's going on, everybody? This is Clark. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast here with Jace. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing all right, man. Just having a little heartburn with these... uh these interest rates on the mortgages, man, this is a unprecedented territory we're in right now. It's nuts. Yeah, really. We're recording this on the 16th, so June 16th, and we just got an, I got a notification from the Wall Street Journal. It says the average rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage hit 5.78%, the highest level since 2008. Crazy that, in what, a year and a half, two years, two and a half years ago, people were getting 2.6%, 2.5%-ish or so? Yeah, no, I think I think you're spot on. We we had an unprecedented run of low rates for a very long time, and then obviously with the surge of housing and housing demand and housing shortages, new home construction mainly, it's been crazy watching values just skyrocket. And now we're seeing just the opposite, and just a you know almost flip of a switch as the feds uh, been forced to try to raise rates to to curb inflation so yeah i mean if you're going to get a mortgage today you're looking 30 year you're looking at high fives low sixes probably which i don't know that i thought i would see in at least in the short short term in my lifetime i mean my parents used to talk about these mortgages back in the day like eight and nine percent i thought that was like you know something in the history book <laughs> But we may be staring at right. it pretty something soon. Never, something you'd never see again, right? Yeah, totally. And you yeah, know what's wild? Is down thirty-three percent year to date. The S and P is down twenty-four percent year to date. Yeah, and tech, I think, has been kind of leading that. You know what's wild is uh, I was thinking about high yield savings accounts. Man, I haven't got a big adjustment for my Marcus account in quite some time either. <laughs> Back upward. I don't know if yeah, you have. really kind of makes you mad, right? It's such a scam. They're so quickly, they're so quick to like suck it in and then suck you in on the money and then drop yeah. your interest rate. But then things start going back up and you never get an increase. You know, it's a another interesting phenomenon. I read this thing the other day that was kind of about the, you know, we've had this millennial surge, right? All of us millennials. I'm one of them. You're one of them. Age wise that have kind of entered the, the workforce in the market and gone through college, mainly post 2008. And so we haven't had these experiences. And granted, every recession brings some amazing businesses. And so we've had this big surge of in you know the Ubers and the Lyfts and the food delivery and all this thing. <laughs> it basically said that you know, hey, you've been getting food delivered on XYZ app, getting your driver to take you to this place, you know, getting this delivered, that delivered, XYZ subscription with these different companies and whatnot. It's like that. Those days are over. Now you're gonna have to start paying the real cost of of what things cost because those <laughs> companies have lost a combined fifteen billion dollars in net cash. That's not even in publicly traded value. That's just in in cash that they've lost this year alone. So interesting times. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we got a good interview this week with Adam. He works uh, in health insurance industry, has been with the same employer since he graduated college. So that's something that we don't hear about very often anymore. Uh, in his 40s, net worth of $7 million, 1.5 in retirement, 1.5 in home equity, 3.5 in a taxable brokerage account, and then other stuff, 529s, HSAs, etc. Last week, we had Mike. He's been in sales most of his career, net worth of $4.5 million, paid for a house, a little bit of cash in the market and in, in the stock market. Um, so a good interview with him last week. If you have a question for any of our millionaires, especially with some of this market volume, 
volatility, I think it'd be interesting to get people's takes on it. Send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com or go to our website and hit the tab, ask a millionaire and, and we'll get your answer or get your question live on the air. So thanks for tuning in. And without any further delay, let's get into this week's interview with Adam. Adam, you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. So, uh, name's Adam. Live uh, just outside Nashville, uh, Tennessee, a little town called Franklin. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Tennessee boy. Lived here my whole life. Upper 40s. I'll keep it at that. I'm not 50 yet. Upper 40s. Now I'm, four, I'm 47. Married and, uh, and a couple of kids. One just finished freshman year in college. The other is a sophomore in high school. So, I worked for one of the big health insurance companies and, and have been there uh, my whole career coming up on 25 years next year. So what I'm up to lately is working from home all day, every day. So I'm pretty excited about things opening back up a little bit. Maybe I can get uh, back in the office here, uh, at least to some extent, fairly soon. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Um, just crossed the $7 million threshold in the last couple of months. Holy cow. So how is that broken up? Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of a breakdown here. So, th- th- and th- this is a you know fa- fairly boring breakdown, but uh, no mortgage on the primary residence, and you know with what's been going on around here in the uh, in the real estate market, that primary residence is probably in the one point six to one point seven million range at this point. So, a fair amount tied up in that, but no no, no real estate in addition to that. Then I got probably about one point five to one point six million in retirement accounts. Um, bulk of that's uh, you know with my four hundred one k. And then a little bit in a cash balance pension, a couple hundred thousand or so in IRAs uh, for, for me and my wife, um, almost none of which is in a Roth IRA. It's almost all tax deferred. So we'll, we'll probably touch on that a little as we go. But then, then the bulk of the rest of it is just in taxable brokerage accounts. So about three and a half million or so in, in that type of investment account, a little over two million at Fidelity, which is heavily equities. Um, roughly a million at Vanguard, which is a little more of a mix of equities and tips and muni bond funds and things like that. And then probably about 400,000 I've got with a financial advisor. Some of that in private placement REITs, um, the other portion of it in mostly fixed income, safer stuff through, through him, through, through a Schwab account. So that's the bulk of it. Rest of it's, um, HSA in the $75,000 range, probably about 50,000 in cash savings. And then. About one, about one hundred seventy-five thousand and a five-two-nine for my daughter, which I don't really count as my asset. I've told the kids that the five-two-nines are theirs; it'll cover school, and whatever's left is theirs. So I don't, I don't really consider that part of part of my pie anymore. And hoping to get them off to a to a good start and and uh, start their uh, start their lives debt-free. That's awesome. So first thing that goes through my mind is you can't get rich working for somebody else, and you've done it. I have done it, um, and I, a gr- great employer. Um, you know, I mentioned 25 years at the same place. So I literally gra- graduated from, um, from college one month, started work <laughs> the next month, got married the following month. So I got all that kind of out of the way, uh, in, in just a two to three month period, um, right after graduating from school and have made it and have made a career there. So have worked with great people for great people. You know, I like it, but it's probably more like eight, three year careers or five, five year careers. Seems like about the time something gets dull, I'm, I'm moving into something new and exciting. So yeah, you can, you can, you know, that, that's a rarity these days, but you can, you can do it. You can, uh, you can stick it out if you're disciplined and, uh, willing to spend less than you make and, uh, start early and stay after it. Um, you, you, you can do this without being terribly creative. I certainly don't consider myself terribly creative, but, uh, uh you can make it work. Totally. So let's get into the allocation here a little bit. The, the money that you have invested in the market, whether it's tax protected or not, is that primarily in stocks, yep. bonds? What's the makeup there? Yeah, it, it's it's roughly 60-40 um, equities and bonds, um, which that has changed a fair amount over the last, you know, I would say three or four years as the, as the balances have grown. I've sort of pulled back from the equity exposure, which I, I know I've left money on the table doing that. But it, it, at some point, um, you know, I start to feel a little more uh, focused on preservation as opposed to as opposed to growth. So it's roughly 60-40 in equities. Now, within my equities, I'm fairly well diversified as, to, uh, as well. So probably, you know, 80-20 domestic versus international. The domestic stuff is probably, uh, last I looked at it, it was roughly half large cap and quarter mid cap, quarter small cap. So that's a pretty aggressive allocation within the equity bucket. But the overall equity allocation uh, you know, is, is probably a little on the conservative end. So I'm, I'm trying to right size that a little bit. I think, I, in my opinion, sort of over course corrected a little bit there. And, 
And now as I just think about longer term growth and, you know, legacy planning and things like that, I think I'm probably going to end up tilting a little back, uh, a little more toward uh, toward equities in the near future, just as additional investment opportunities come up. Has your allocation always looked similar to, to the way it is now? Yeah, I, I no, it hasn't. I, in fact, I, I tried to look back at this, although my record keeping skills are not great. So I, I was looking back, you know, as much as 10 years ago, sort of 15 years ago to see what it looked like when I maybe first crossed the, you know, the, the, the seven figure threshold. And even as recently as, you know, 10 years ago, it was more like 80, 20 equities. And my guess is if I could go back further than that and reproduce the record, it's probably more like 90, 10 <laughs> equities. So I have definitely moved it more toward a safer allocation as I have aged, as I'm getting closer to, you know, what I may consider early retirement here at some point in the relatively near future. And just as the balances have grown and I've, been quite as a little more about a little more about preservation. So it's, it's you know it's probably moved from ninety ten to sixty forty over the last fifteen years. It, it, it is a is a, is a rough estimate of how things have have gone. The, the other thing that I would mention here that might be a little different, and um, I think this should be doing it um, should be doing it differently is I'm I'm heavily tilted toward equities in my taxable accounts and pretty heavily tilted toward bonds in my tax-deferred accounts. So I know there's different, different schools of thought on that, but just for tax management purposes, if nothing else, I, that, that, that's helping me sort of manage the amount of dividends and interest that are that are being thrown off there, where a lot of that's accumulating in the tax-deferred account for now, and most of the uh, equity exposure is in the, uh, in the taxable accounts. So Adam, let me push you on the, the allocation, the 60-40. You said you, you used to be 90-10-ish. Yep. So at, at seven million, I mean, let's call it five-ish liquid, right? If yep. we take out the yep. house and, and the five twenty-nine, why not be more into equity? And by equity, I'm saying just like index funds or actively managed mutual funds, knowing that if there was a big market correction, you still have two or three million dollars. Yeah. Well, I, I, that is how I'm starting to think about it more and more as the balances just start to get start to get bigger. So I, you know, I actually until, until I sat down. And put numbers to this allocation. I didn't know that it had tilted back quite that much. And and part of it, I'll, I'll tell you, part of it was driven by what happened. You know, a, a year or so ago, I was more heavily tilted toward equities. When we had the big downturn, I ended up funneling money around and trying to take advantage of the upswing there. But I but I kind of played it too safe when I when I did that, and then I was kind of back to where I started. I ended up pulling back. <laughs> so I, I should have just let it ride from there and I would have come out much better. So uh, made up losses, but certainly didn't take advantage of the upside that's happened uh, you know, since then as much as I could have. So I, I do believe that that is an opportunity for me and something that I need to be thinking differently about in my portfolio. It just... I've got to get over the fact that, um, you know, a 30% downturn here, we're talking about, you know, a million dollar downturn, right? That's hard to stomach when you just think about the big number. But on the other hand, it, it means there's still a couple million in equities, right? I mean, it's not like it's, um, uh, the, the entire balance and, and long term. I know, I know what will happen here. That's how I've gotten here. So, um, improvement opportunity there, I do think is, you know, the the next few years go by, and I'm still working and adding to my investments. I will slowly slowly start to to um you know to chip away at that, and I've got great opportunity to do that because, as I mentioned before, um a lot of the fixed you know fixed income stuff is is in my 401k, which means I could easily flip it to um, equity exposure and not even create um you know a, a tax event for me. So I, I'm ready to do that. You know, market at all time highs is one of those things that I have trouble with, just like everything else. So, you know, when's the right time to do that? Well, I've missed that right time, you know, five times over the last six months or so. <laughs> at some point, at some point, I will pull the trigger on that, right. and that'll be how I think I right size this allocation a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here behind a computer and say it because I'm not the one looking at my bank account balance yeah. going on 1.5 million when there's a turndown. So, yeah, yeah, uh, it's just interesting to, to think about overall. So. Let's talk cash. You have about fifty thousand in cash. Yeah. So how come so little? Just because you have so much in the market that's accessible. If something really were to happen. Yeah, that's my logic. There is that I've, you know I do have a, enough even outside retirement accounts that's in fixed income. That's you know I can pull it out at any time that I needed. So I, I'm I'm kind of thinking about the fifty thousand is just my immediate you know cash reserves, but could easily get it um, whatever else I might need through 
just the tech, just the taxable account, the, the fixed income portion that's sitting in the taxable right. accounts. Right. So when, when you make money now, you get a paycheck, where does it go? Does it sit in that cash first or do you just throw it right into a market account? I, I just throw it right into a market account. Um, so that, that's, that's how I built up those balances, significant balances at both Fidelity and Vanguard, just depending on, you know, kind of how I'm feeling about allocation and, and where I think I'm a little underweighted, um, is that money comes available. Um, I'm, I'm shifting it there over the last year or so. I've been moving a little bit more toward my, uh, toward the financial advisor. And we we can talk about that a little bit as well. I do, I do not have a lot under management with him, but he helps me a lot just think through overall allocation. So, so I've also been kind of funneling money, um, his way. That's where I guess you would say a little bit of my, if there is such a thing in my portfolio as an alternative investment, it's sort of sitting with him. Some, a little bit of private placement REIT. You know, a little bit of uh, just market hedge um, kind of stuff is in there. So I also pushed some of it that way as well. So when did you start? When you had the when did you start taking the cash and just putting it right into the market? I just ask because I think there's different approaches on cash, right? You can yep. either hold for an opportunity, you can hold because you want a bigger emergency fund, or you're saving to buy a house or something like that. I mean, at right. what point, either net worth wise or cash balance wise or income wise, did you say, okay, now I'm just going to take all my excess cash and invest it in the market? Right. For me, it was probably more about when I reached certain events or crossed cross certain you know goals or milestones. So, for example, when we moved into the house we're in now, which we've been in for about seven years, I was piling up cash in advance of that because I I wanted to pay cash for the house. So the cash balance was growing there, and you know once we got beyond that threshold, I didn't feel like I had a need to be piling up cash much anymore because from this from this point on. The next house is going to be a downsize from here. It's not going the other direction. So I didn't need to be building up, uh, you know, those, those reserves as much as I did before. Um, and, and I have never, I, I've finally convinced myself, uh, probably, you know, 15 years ago or so that I was as bad at market timing as everybody else. So I just started investing it when it was available and just quit sort of thinking about, you know, I'm going to sit on cash until I, uh, until I think the market is is uh, valuing, and then I'll put it in there. I, I I would I miss that all the time, just like everybody else. So I just decided when it's available, I'm putting it in. Now, as I say that, I've had trouble with that the last year or so. <laughs> so as I've tilted my allocation this direction, um, I you know I, I guess I now think that I'm that I am a market timer. I'm having trouble tilting it back that you know that far with the with the market continuing to just rip through new all time highs. But that that's sort of been the logic, you know, for for most of my investing life is don't try to time the market money's available put it in the market over time you'll be pleased with the results and and i have yeah yeah good so let's talk about the house 1.7 million fully paid off right it is okay and and i think you jace correct me if i'm wrong i think that's probably the highest paid for house we've had on the show how much did what did you buy it for yeah probably just over a million in the house um so we've had huge appreciation in this area in the last you know, set we've been here seven years, and, and we got it, and we got a good deal on the on the land, and I think did quite well on the initial build. But the appreciation the last you know year or so has been uh, r- ridiculous, and sort of has driven it up into this range, which which creates you know creates other challenges, right? I mean, now you've got capital gains tax to worry about that I never really thought I'd have to be <laughs> even thinking about on a primary residence. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's sort of. It, it's it's reacted differently. The house values in this area react differently than I was anticipating, which is a nice nice problem to have as well. Of course, the issue at this point is, as much as I have tried to convince my wife it'd be a great time to sell, we love the area, and and you know everything else is just as expensive now too. So I don't know that it would do a lot of good to sell <laughs> yeah. and move down the street um, and just buy at the peak there. So right. um, yep. So does any part of you say, "Gosh, I've got so much equity in the house now"? I mean, you just talked yeah. about thinking about yeah. selling but a- 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 absolutely so my you know i don't know when this will be but at some point over the next you know five seven years as the kids get out of school and through college and aren't coming back home for the summers and things like that um, a, da- a downsize is no doubt within our future and i'm looking at that as uh, not only a way to reduce expenses heading into retirement but also free up another you know i don't i don't know how much it'll depend on where we end up going and what we end up buying but probably i mean at least another half million probably three quarters of a million of investable assets through that downsizing um that we can then in- invest and help help fund longer term retirement and legacy planning as well so that that's coming 
Um, not sure exactly uh, when, and, and part of that will just be uh, convincing my wife to move because she loves the area so much. Adam, do you have plans to retire early at all? Yeah, I do. You know, and then the next question is, you know, what do you consider early? When is that? And that's where that's where I start to lose any uh, any real definition around that. So I, I've often thought that I would probably retire around fifty five. And of course, you know, that's that's one thing to say that when you're thirty eight or forty one, and now I'm forty seven. You know, fifty five doesn't feel like that far away anymore. I, I, you know, I've got some soul searching to do to figure out whether whether I'm going to be able to. Uh, you know, to live with myself and feel the days after that because I I do enjoy uh, my, my work and take it seriously and I'm not I'm just not the kind of guy who's going to be able to sit around and watch TV and I don't even golf so, uh, so you know something has to be resolved there for me and I and I get that but um, but yeah I, I anticipate an, an early retirement uh, I I would I would be shocked if it's before 55 but we'll, we'll see what happens over the next few years. Did you plan to get to this level of wealth? Absolutely not. So, um, did, did not grow up in a wealthy household. Always have been around, you know, folks who treated money with respect and were and were disciplined savers and and not um, not big spenders and living below. I grew up with all of that, and to me, that was the path to get toward you know a comfortable financial base. But um, ne- never expected to get to this, you know, to to, to this level and, and realize how blessed I am and realize how much help I need to try to figure out what to do with this from here on out. Because, you know, it gets to the gets to the level where you you realize that, you you know, the do it yourself or attitude that got you here and sort of the disciplined way of doing it might might need to be reevaluated a, a, a bit, not some radical change. But um, I never anticipated getting here, you know, at, at any point. Do your friends or coworkers or family know of your wealth? No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, li- li- you know, live in a nice house, drive nice cars, hang around friends that have, you know, work work in similar businesses with similar jobs and things like that. But um, I-, I don't believe most of them know that. I mean, you know, my my very close family, for the most part, doesn't, you know, is isn't aware of that. Getting to that interesting point in my life is a grown teen. You know, he's in he's in college. Before you know it, he's going to be out on his own. And I'm thinking about things like, you know, who's gonna who's gonna be the trustee of our family trust and things like that. So I find myself having conversations with him, you know, that I never really anticipated having at this point because I feel like I have to um, because I got to make sure that folks are aware and are prepared if something was to happen and that sort of thing. But now, for the for the most part, I you know we 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 really um, don't live like someone that would have this level of wealth. You know, we we do have a very expensive house, um, and we drive nice cars. And beyond that, we live pretty frugally, actually, <laughs> um, shockingly frugally on on a number of fronts. So, and, and your kids now are they aware of, of of the value of the wealth, or is it more of hey, I've just got some money down the road. We need to have some more discussions and have some 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 big boy conversations that maybe I didn't have with you when you were a teenager. Right. Yeah. My my son is just starting to be let into the details um to to a small extent. It's interesting, you know, at that age, I, I I'm still not sure that most kids have fully grasped what, what some of that means. So I'm not even you know, it's just a number probably to some extent to him. But we've kind of talked through, you know, here's the major buckets. Here's what you need to be aware of. Here's who you would need to call to get help with this. Like nobody's expecting you to figure this out on your own. Here's the financial advisor. You know, here's the estate attorney. You call them if something happens and we trust them and they're going to talk you through it. But, you know, just just enough to feel like he, he's not going in totally blind is sort of where we left him. But different place, obviously, with my with, with my uh, daughter. I haven't quite gotten that far yet. But that's one of those things that I think is going to have to that's going to evolve over the next, you know, three, four years as they uh, get get through school and get out on their own. I'm sure we'll have, need to have some more transparent conversations around this. Yeah, totally. So as you're going through this this journey of, of becoming millionaire, then multimillionaire, how long did each of those kind of pegs take you to get there? Yeah, yeah. I, again, was trying to go back through my records to make sure I was thinking about this correctly, track this, but I'm pretty sure that we crossed the seven-figure threshold when I was around age 32. So call it 10 years out of school, 10 years of working, pretty good market running up to that. It wasn't like we were making, you know, buckets of money through through that time. 
uh, and I probably should have mentioned this before. The fir- first five years that my wife and I were married, we we were both working. She was, she was a school teacher, um, and I had just gotten started in my career. And then when we had our uh, son, about five years into marriage, um, my wife's been a stay at home mom ever since until about two years ago when she started dabbling in some travel uh, travel agent stuff. Which that was that was a fun fun business to be in in 2020, as you can imagine, wasn't a lot of action going on there. So, um, but that but that's sort of where we started. It was probably about 10 years in, and as you can imagine, when you start thinking through the math of that, you know, that involves some heavy duty saving. So we were living way below our means, um, and sort of the mentality we took into the marriage was. We knew we wanted her to stay at home once we had kids. So from day one, we were living off my salary and not spending a nickel of her salary. And you know, these were during the days when we were both making, let's say, twenty-five grand each, right? So we were living off half of that, saving the other half because we knew that once we had children, her salary wasn't going to be there. So we just got started doing that initially. Um, learned to kind of, you know, live that way early on. And then as my salary grew and my role expanded and then she stopped working, you know, it was, it was not a problem for us to continue to, um, to live well, well below our means. So probably I would say I was 10, we were 10 years into our marriage when we crossed the, the seven figure, um, you know, seven figure threshold. And then when, you know, you start doing the math on that, it was only a couple years later when the financial crisis happened. So we, we, <laughs> we backtracked and fell under the seven figure threshold for a short while there as the market was recovering from those losses because practically all of our wealth was, was in the, was in the market at that point. So that, that sort of gives you an idea of how long it took us to get to the first million. Now, what I'll tell you, I've, I've, I kind of lost track from there until probably about three years ago. But I, but I would tell you that for the last three years or so, you're, you're talking about growing wealth by something pushing seven figures a year for the last three years as the market has done quite well, and as our um, primary residence has increased in value by a fair amount every every year as well. So the pace has you know hugely accelerated the last three years or so, which I do not anticipate that continuing over the next three or four years. But it just gives you sort of a flavor of that first uh, million, and then how quickly the you know fifth, sixth, and seventh came uh, on the heels of this market and the and the increase in value of the primary residence. Totally. When did you decide to buy that million dollar primary residence? Yeah, so we've been we've been in this house almost seven years. So that would have been when we were just you know around around forty. Kids were obviously quite a bit quite a bit younger then. We 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 lived in a great area before that, but just decided with some of the development that was going on around us that we wanted to move out into an area that was probably a little uh, a little little further out, a little safer from future development, a little more a uh, little more land and a lot more space. So moved into a very nice neighborhood and we're able to build on our own and have been very have been very pleased with that obviously as you guys know the the Nashville area in general and th- and this area that we live in in Franklin Tennessee and Williamson County is uh you know probably ranks in the top 10 in terms of you know property value increases over the last year or so with all of the covid impact there so we've greatly benefited from that at least on paper um and you know not not sure exactly what we'll do in terms of Staying here for extended period of time or downsizing, we'll kind of see how that goes. And how fast did you end up paying that off? Yeah, we 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 actually stockpiled cash in the years leading up to that purchase, and we pay cash for the construction. We took out a mortgage on this one. Although I will say, look, let me backtrack on that. We took out a home equity loan to pull the equity out of the home that we were living in before this. In order to fund the first few hundred thousand of this build, and then and then you know replenish that as we sold that that other residence, but we've never had a, a mortgage on this house. We ended up stockpiling cash uh, to pay for that leading up, leading up to the build and through the build. But you put a million dollars in that. We did. Yep. Just over, just, just over a million, including some of the renovations and pool addition, things like that, that have gone in post-construction. We've got just over a million in it and we, we cash flowed that. So was that a hard decision or easy? It was. Well, I, I would say, it was hard intellectually because I knew what else could could be done <laughs> with those funds as we were working through that. Um, but emotionally, not hard at all. I, I, I just I've, I've I have been a um, you know I guess as close to a Dave Ram- Dave Ramsey disciple at least in the early days of our marriage as, as you could be. So um, we've never really 
taking on debt. We did have a small mortgage on our on our very first house, but when we bought the second one, we ended up paying cash for that one. And then when we moved up significantly into this one, we decided we were we, we were going to do the same. So I am pleased with that because it's just one less thing. It you know it gives gives me a little more peace of mind as I do start to get to the age where something like early retirement starts to. Uh, starts to feel a little more realistic not to have that uh you know the thought of a mortgage hanging over my head I'm, I'm pleased with that now when i think through what that money might have done in the market over that time period that it's been in the house you know the, the, the that's where the intellectual part of you and the math part of you might come to a different answer but emotionally we i've, I've been pleased right. with that decision how often do you look at your finances or calculate net worth yeah i I am a big personal capital user, which, you know, the upside of that is it, it's it's so easy. Like once I've got everything linked, it's, you know, literally open it up and it links it for you and it's done in five seconds for what I used to spend, you know, hours trying to tabulate on a spreadsheet every month or whatever, just to kind of keep up with how things are going. So that's been a that's been a huge blessing and a much more efficient way to stay on top of things. The downside is because it's so easy, I can open up the thing every day. And I, and I, prob- <laughs> and I probably do. Multiple actually. times a day. Right, right. And I probably do open it up every day. Now that I say that, that sounded kind of funny. But now that I think about it, I probably do open it up every day. Now, I don't take action on it. You know, I don't do anything with it. It's just a, oh, let's see what happened today. The market was way down. Wonder you know, wonder what the impact was there. And I'll, I'll open it up, look at it and go on about my business. So I'm not a, uh, you know, I don't fret over it or try to outsmart it or anything like that. But I, I, I stay on top of that quite frequently. So at any, at any point, if you were to ask me, Hey, what's the, what's the net worth looking like now? I could probably give you an answer that was correct as of, you know, a week ago. I'm probably on top of it enough to, uh, enough to have a, uh, something that's as recent as a week old because <laughs> I'm, it's, it's just so easy. I love that tool. All right. All right. So about 5 million in the market. Is that right? Across all the correct. accounts? Correct. Yep. So what's been your biggest single day gain or loss? Do you remember? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a good question. I'm just thinking of those days like March 2020 or April, really, where it was down. Those 10% down days were, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands down, right? When you think about how much was in equities, you're talking about, you know, quarter quarter million down in a day in those crazy days. So, you know, that, 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 that takes some, that takes some guts to stick with it at that point. And I will say that what I, what I did at that time was that's when I actually moved some money out of fixed over into equities. Cause I thought this is, you know, this can't last forever. I'm going to take advantage of this. My mistake was then as the market recovered or partially recovered, you know, even halfway recovered back to where it was pre COVID, yeah. I moved a yeah. bunch of stuff out. I said, okay, cool. I've covered Into the, the losses. Now yeah. I'm moving it out. And, and, uh, and it was nowhere. You know, it was nowhere near where it was pre-COVID, and I, I did not take full advantage of the run-up that we've had since then. But that at least allowed me to, you know, to feel like I had recouped my losses a lot more quickly than I otherwise would have. Right, right. So, <laughs> what are you going to do with all this money? <laughs> That's a good point. I, I mean, we're not going to spend it all. I mean, you can come come to that realization, uh, realization, and then that's when you start pivoting toward trying to get some help thinking around legacy. Uh, legacy planning. So I, I, I do believe that I will retire early. I do believe that our lifestyle will not change all that much, at least in the early years of retirement. So trust me, we will burn through a fair amount, just sort of live in our normal lifestyle that we've created for ourselves. And, you know, at, at least in the early years of retirement, my wife's got quite a long list of a wish list of, of vacations and things once the kids are gone. So I'm sure that'll eat up um, a fair amount of it as well. But at this point, th- there's going to be money unless something, you know, un- unbelievably uh, unprecedented happens, there's going to be money that's, uh, um, that ends up in the hands of the kids. And now we sort of pivoted toward trying to make sure that we've thought through the best way to do that and making sure that we're spending the right time and energy around helping them be ready for that. Cause I, I know, right. I know all of the stats around how much wealth, you know, d- doesn't make it through the first generation. Mm-hmm. The last number I heard was 70% and 90% oh, wow. is gone by second generation. So we do not want to be that, um, that kind of family. So I want to, I want to use this to change the family tree. I want to do it in a way that the, that the kids don't, you know, become lazy and they're, they're, they're not going to be trust fund babies. That's not going to happen around here. But I, but I do want to set them up for success with it and make sure they understand that they, they then have to shoulder the responsibilities and, and, and it works its way on down. So, so that's where a lot of our time has been spent. I'd say 
even over the last year or so with all the craziness going on with the pandemic and things like that, it's sort of brought me to that realization even more. And we've done quite a bit of work around um, estate planning in the last year to try to position ourselves for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So let's talk career a little bit and, and management. I mean, we talked at the beginning yeah. 25 years, right? In, in the, in the same position as you look back and, and also you mentioned you were really Dave, Ram- Dave Ramsey disciple at the beginning and just yeah. living off your wife's income. Are you happy with how you had your work-life balance? Do you wish you would have spent more in the beginning and in, enjoyed more time or are you happy with how that played out? Yeah. I, I, I you know, I, have no right to complain about anything, but in retrospect, we, we could have been looser early on. And, and I don't know that that would have been the wise thing for us to do the first, you know, two, three years of marriage as we were getting our legs underneath us because you, you set patterns and create muscle memories there that I think have been very good for us. But it's, it's sort of that, you know, five to 10 year window or even 10 to 15 year old, uh, 10 to 15 year window when the kids are still young and we, we still had our fun. We still did the Disney vacation and did all that, but sort of the, the, you know, I call them the daily luxuries. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't run around and go out to eat all that much. <laughs> we didn't, you know, take the kids and splurge on movies and museums and all that as much as we obviously could have given, you know, in, in how, how you look at things in retrospect now. So again, hopefully those have created the right paths and the right muscle memories for, uh, for our kids as well to understand that you know you gotta you gotta uh, create a little scarcity yourself in order to you know in order to position yourself the way you want to be long term but we could have been looser then so I, I'm, I'm very happy that we never took on debt early on because we just never had that mess to clean up and and know so many people who you know have spent years cleaning up those early mistakes so really really happy that we didn't enter into that our problem was probably more on the other side probably could have loosened up a little bit more a little earlier and change the change the quality of life um you know more more than the little bit of money that that it would have cost us to do it so you know had to do over probably would do that a little bit differently did did you worry about money in those early years yes in the early years, absolutely. You know, and, and that was really the push toward living off one income, knowing one was going to go away. And at that point, you know, I'm the wet behind the ears, 22 year old, right out of college, really no idea what my career trajectory was going to be. Um, so at that point, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally pessimistic by nature. So you start thinking, well, I, you know, this might just be my salary for the next 15, 20 years and we want to have kids. So the only way to make that work is to live pretty lean. So absolutely. We, you know, I, worry might be a little bit of a strong word, but it was definitely something we thought about, were cognizant of. And we, uh, you know, like I said, created that sense of scarcity for us and, and sort of took that probably further than we needed to, but, but definitely spent time, uh, you know, spent more time than, than most, I think, thinking about those things early on. Yeah. The, the financial advisor, did you always use one or is that new and how come you use him now? Yeah, that's, that is, uh, you know, not new in the last, you know, two or three years, but, but in the last probably 10 years. I think so. Multi-million threshold, I think, is when it hit me. Like, okay, I probably got to get some advice here. You know, I, I, I wasn't too scared before that, but it got to the point where I um, thought I probably needed some help. So, so we have we have an individual who helps me think through overall asset allocation, but he understands that I am a well, I, I, I'm pretty, I'm a, I'm a do-it-yourself kind of guy, and have continued that to some extent. I'm also an index fund you know, high level allocation, but, but in, but index fund investing, low expenses, I don't try to beat them. You know, I'm not trying to find the needle in the haystack. I want to, I want to own the whole haystack and that's my mentality. And he knows that. So we talk about high level allocations, but I'm not looking for stock pickers. I'm not looking for managed funds. So some of that value that he might be able to bring to some of his clients, I'm not really looking for. So we got a good, good relationship in that kind of helps him with overall framework. I execute a lot of it myself. Through the you know my directly owned uh, Vanguard and 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 uh, Fidelity accounts, um, but that's probably that probably goes back about ten years. Okay, okay. So let's talk about we we mentioned a little bit before we started recording, but the FDIC story. Tell us oh, that. Yeah, yeah. So this is th- this definitely qualifies as my biggest money mistake because at the time I thought it was going to be about a hundred and fifty thousand dollar mistake, which kept me up one night as I came to that realization. But pre financial crisis, I, I had consolidated a, a, a few different savings accounts into one particular bank who happened to be offering the best uh, online savings rates. It was a it was a bank named Indymac, and for those who 
um, are familiar with all the stuff that was going on during the financial crisis, you'll, you'll recognize that name as one of the names of the banks that didn't make it. Um, so as some of the banks were were going under and not able to um, to cover all the deposits, uh, Andy Mac happened to be one of those. Um, you, you, some some of the listeners will probably also remember that FDIC coverage limits at that point were a hundred thousand per depositor, per, you know, per bank. And I thought I had structured this account in a way that we had double that because I thought I had it set up in a joint account. Well, we didn't. It was in my name. So we had one person's hundred thousand, the other hundred and fifty thousand or so above that. One day just disappeared from the account <laughs> because it wasn't FDIC insured, and the bank uh, went under. And so. Lots of has happened after that as you know, some of the bigger banks stepped in and gobbled up some of the some of the smaller banks and took on their deposit liabilities and that sort of thing. IndyMac was not in that way. They were one of the few that initially didn't have a, a bank that sort of stepped in and covered their uncovered deposits. So about a year or a year and a half went by before there eventually was legislation passed uh, where some of the, you know, call it the bailout if you want to, some of the bailout ended up covering depositors who who had um, amounts on deposit in excess of the SDIC, uh, FDIC limits, and IndyMac was part of that solution. So luckily, that money did eventually come back to me, and I had already written it off thinking there was no way they were going to retroactively make changes to that. But with all of the other bailout funds that were sloshing around at the time, I guess they decided it was fair um, to sweep those banks into it as well. So yeah, almost 150000 And, and that, that, that really, when it comes down to it, it was basically a paperwork problem. I did not follow through on making sure that account was set up as a joint account. Therefore, I had a lot more exposure than I thought I did. And wouldn't you know it, the bank that I had the money on deposit with uh, did, didn't make it. So that was a sleepless night. It worked out okay in the end. Yep. Yeah. So you just, did you just log into like your online banking portal one day and it was the value was gone? Yeah, it was. Um, I think I saw the article saying that they were, you know, that, that a few of the banks were in trouble. I think IndyMac was maybe even mentioned the next day. You know, you start seeing the articles that IndyMac's closing its doors, can't can't cover the deposits, and you know, immediately look at the account and the balance is just gone. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a bit of a shocker wow. how quickly all that happened on the on the that, that was on the very front end of, of a lot of those uh, a lot of those bank stresses that were going on. So lesson learned. Now, since then, the FDIC, FDIC limits, I think, are, are now, they're either 200 or 250. I, don't quote me on that. Somebody can look that up. But I think they're much higher than they were back then. So lot, lots of changes in that space since then. But that, that, was, that was a pretty boneheaded mistake on my part that almost cost me uh, a, a fair amount. Wow. So let's talk advice here, Adam, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. But yeah. I think you shared some, some good financial advice and, and life advice and maybe hit on landlording. I mean, we have a lot of our millionaires are, are landlords or own other real estate you mentioned you don't so yeah just share some general advice here yeah so i i have actually we'll start with the landlord thing i i have i have thought about that from time to time have never pulled the trigger and and i i have no interest in being a long distance landlord and now with property values as they are around here i think that ship has probably sailed i don't love the idea of the hassle of involved in that um not to mention that a high enough percentage of my own personal net worth is tied up in my own personal residence that I feel like I got plenty of exposure to real estate already. So I, I don't know that I'll ever venture into that space. I know lots of people do very well at that, but I frankly don't have the time or energy to spend on, I think, doing the homework needed to make sure I'm uh, getting it right on the front end and, and managing. I'm, I'm so I'm so cheap that I wouldn't hire a property management company. I would want to be doing all that myself. And I, I, I think I know myself well enough to know that, that I'd be getting it over my head there. So I, I have never ventured into the uh, end of the real estate space. You know, my, my, my advice really would be you don't have to be super creative or take, you know, unbelievable risk or hit the lottery in order to build the kind of wealth we're talking about here. Well, everything that we're talking about here was built on a solid job, one company, 25 years. I've done, I've done very well at that company. That company has been great for me. But this is just um, spending less than you make and investing the difference and doing it all the time, no exceptions. So I, that that's been the you know the mantra we've used for. 25 years and, and, you know, pe- pe- normal people can do this. Yes, people are going to have incomes that vary. Not everybody's going to have the same uh, level of income I did, but everybody can do every other thing that I did. Um, and whether you got the same income level or not, you, you can, you can get to wealth levels that, you know, that will surprise you, um, if you, if you just start this early on. So the, 
Only other thing that I would probably mention, this is a, a, a regret on my part as well, now that I'm to the point where I'm starting to think a little more about about taxes and you know once they become a little more controllable in retirement I have not done a good jo- a good job at all and didn't do a good job early on taking advantage of Roth accounts so of the you know million and a half or so that I've got in retirement accounts there's only about a hundred thousand of that that's in a Roth account so every bit of the rest of it um, is going to be you know tax at, um, at, at, at taxable income levels when it comes out and I think early on, I was probably a little penny wise and pound foolish to probably should have shoved more money toward Roth. And then obviously, as my income has grown now, it makes much more sense to get the tax deduction now because I think I'll actually be in a lower tax bracket in retirement than now. But I could have done that differently early on and years and years of of growth in the Roth accounts for the first four, five, six, eight, ten years that we were married would would I think would think have have put me in a much more um, diversified tax situation than I'm going to be in now heading into early retirement. So that's just another thing that I would mention to people. It's always nice to get the tax deduction at any point, but there's good, the tax deduction is material enough that you're almost forced to do the normal 401k early on when you're not making that much money, swallow it and do the Roth would be my advice to people. Just go ahead and pay the taxes. It's a lower rate than you'll probably ever pay in the re- for the rest of your life. Get some money in Roth early on. You can always pivot the other direction as your, uh, you know, as your income and, and tax burden goes up. Adam, t- to that point, being on this path to potentially retire early, do you think you'll do any Roth conversions? Given that y'all are still pretty frugal and won't be increasing lifestyle or anything going forward? Yeah, I, I do. I definitely think that that window between, you know, let's just use fifty five hypothetically, fifty five and. 72 or whenever we got to start taking it out. I, I definitely plan to do Roth conversions in there. You know, the, the, the investments themselves throw off a decent amount of dividends and income, capital gains distributions and those kind of things. So it's not like we'll have zero income when I enter retirement. There will be some taxable income coming through. Uh, but that's still going to leave me, you know, in a very manageable tax bracket. So I, I, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, do the math there. It's 17 years worth of a reasonable level of Roth conversions between 55 and when the distributions become mandatory, I think I can start to chip away at that sum. And I've just sort of come to the conclusion that I'm going to do that. Now, obviously, with all of the tax discussion that's flying around now, maybe something will happen that'll change my mind on that. But that's certainly in, in the plans for now. Totally. Do you budget at all? So you'll, you'll laugh at this. We do not. Um, now we did early on and we did for a long time. We don't, we don't anymore. We sort of fallen into the pattern where I'm not frankly sure it would do us a whole lot of good anymore. Um, and it's, it's, you know, this is going to sound awful, but it's not, it's not worth the trouble for me anymore. Cause if, you know, we overspend by a few hundred bucks a month or something, I, I, I don't, I don't worry about it anymore. I did when we, uh, you know, when we were first, uh, first getting our, our legs underneath us. So we haven't budgeted in a while, you know, every once in a while things will start to creep up and I pay attention enough that I can, you know, I can, I, I will notice and we'll have a conversation and we'll get back on track and that's just sort of it. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll move on, but it's less, uh, you know, it's done less from a close monitoring and more of a, Oh, that number was a little higher last month than I expected. What's going on here. You know, I hope we're done with that. We need to get back on track. That's good enough for us for now. Seems to work okay, and uh, we we kind of relieved uh, some some you know a little bit of the discipline around that as uh, as things have loosened up. Totally. Well, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most yeah. expensive meal out you've personally paid for? Ooh, um, so I, I've I've personally paid for for a meal for the folks who who uh, reported to me at one point that was probably in the. You know, seven hundred dollar range for four or five of us, which probably doesn't sound extravagant, but that's about the outside of my comfort level. Okay, what's been the uh, most expensive vacation you've been on? Oh, that's a that's a good one. So, or, or entertainment if you went to a concert, ago, maybe. <laughs> or entertainment, yeah. Vacation is probably the better the better one. It's um so a couple of years ago we we uh, spent almost two weeks. Um, in Europe with the kids, so spent better part of a week in Rome, and then did a uh, and then did a Mediterranean cruise. So I don't remember how. I frankly don't remember how much we spent on that. It, it wasn't ridiculous. It was probably, but it, but it was probably you know it was probably ten grand or something. So pretty it, by, by my estimation, that's an expensive vacation. I'll give you some idea of what the outer fringes of uh, uh, of our luxury items are. Yeah, what's been the uh, most expensive car you've purchased? 
so I still have it now. I still drive my Tesla. Um, I was on the er- I was on the early adopter curve of the te- Tesla Model S. So I'm um, I'm almost six years into that. That's definitely the most expensive car that I've ever bought. Okay, how much have you spent on repairs on that? Uh, almost zero. So <laughs> I think I think I've had you, you guys will think this is funny. The repairs that I've had to do on my Tesla, I've had to replace the the little 12 volt battery like the little battery that runs the electronics in the car not the battery that runs the car that thing tends to go out every once in a while and it's a couple hundred bucks so i've had to do that two or three times and that's about all the money i've put into that car it's been great wow that's awesome and tires yeah. aren't aren't too bad either not too bad it, you know i I'd, I'd probably drive it a little uh, uh a, a little less aggressively than than most tesla drivers so i'm not burning the rubber quite as much as most but not not terribly frequently not not a whole lot more frequently than the other vehicles i've had so it it's been a it's been a great car. I'm gonna hang on to it as long as the as long as the juice is still flowing. Totally. What has been the range of of annual household in, income through your working life as com- as much as you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. So we when we first were both were both working. I think I mentioned earlier we were probably making somewhere. I think we were in the twenty five to twenty six thousand ballpark a piece. So we were in the fifty ish thousand dollar range when we when we first were married. And now, now remember that was you know that was light light years ago back in 1996 or whatever uh so it's, that's been a long time ago current income is is in the it's been in the 400 to 450 range and that sort of combines you know my salary bonus stock award best stock awards at best every year things like that and in addition to dividend you know some dividends and interest that the investments throw off and actually the last couple of years as my wife has been doing some travel agent work she's been adding you know a little bit uh to that income uh as well and it's keeping her busy so that that's been a very good thing for her as well how many hours a week do you usually work Ooh, so I, I would say for probably seven to eight months of the year i am i can get my job done in a normal 40-hour week we have a busy season as probably most jobs do that last four or five months and those weeks can be pretty long. So I, I, you know, I'm probably closer to the 55 to 60 hours a week during, during good portions of those, uh, you know, of, of, of those, uh, busy season months. So I, I, I work a fair amount. Um, you know, it's a job where you're kind of on call all the time. So, you know, I'm up early working, I'm working late. I don't know. I'm not a slave to my laptop all day long. So there's plenty of flexibility within this role, but it, it's, it's pretty heavy, pretty demanding role. How many hours of TV a week do you watch? Ooh, that's a good question. So more now than I probably ever have because the kids, you know, I've, I've, I've found as the kids get older, they don't need me for much anymore. So that there, there's a baseball game on just about every night, but you know, at some point when I decide to sit down and, and watch a little bit. So I, you know, on average, including weekends, I probably watch, I probably watch eight or 10 hours of TV a week. And probably 90% of that is whatever sporting event happens to be on when I sit down. Do you have hobbies that you spend money on or spend time on a lot? Yeah, we we do we do not we're we're not we're not big golfers. We're not big, you know, fill in the blank. We don't have a lot of hobbies. So now we're we're charitably inclined. So we're active at our church and give a fair amount, you know, to to the to the local group that we you know that that we attend and look for charitable opportunities outside that as well. So we spend a lot of of money on uh, charitable contributions. But really, hobbies uh, there there are almost none. My wife's hobby is traveling, so we take our you know two or three vacations a year and spend a fair amount that way. Beyond that, not much. Well, Adam, you've been on a tremendous journey, and congrats on your success once again. That's Adam with a net worth of seven million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.